Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and that can be found on page 1064 of the Church Bibles. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's good to have you here this morning. Uh, before I begin, I just want to acknowledge uh, two of my heroes are with us this morning. Uh, they're my mum and my dad, um, and they're here. And I am what I am, but by the grace of God and their love and care and pointing to be the best thing ever, that Jesus died for a sinner such as me. So I just want to honour them. And, and my sisters are here. Oh, they, I love you guys too as well. <laughs> I want to talk about a show that I love to hate. It's called A Kitchen Nightmares by Gordon Ramsay. I love it and I hate it all at the same time. If you don't know the show, it's where Gordon Ramsay, a well-known chef, goes into average, everyday restaurants and all appearances, they're doing okay, people are there, and he goes into the restaurants, but he goes into the kitchen behind the restaurants and finds out what is actually happening behind the scenes. And there he reveals chicken that's been cooked days ago and it's going to be served. There he goes into the fridge and sees food moulding next to food that's going to be served and going out the door on plates. And you watch it, and it's just sickening, right? It's horrifying. But for us, it's entertainment watching it. But I'm thinking, who are these people sitting in these restaurants? Imagine when they sit down to watch this show. They're thinking, that's us. That's me. That's our local. And how horrible, how horrible and sick to the core would they be that they have eaten at these restaurants? Friends, we come to the fifth and fi- uh, fifth and uh, of seven, not final, fifth of seven churches where Jesus speaks to in the book of Revelation. It comes to the church of Sardis and where Jesus gives with each church personal feedback on how he's going. And he says to this church, by all appearances, you're doing okay. By all appearances, but appearances can be deceiving that Jesus reveals something shocking, horrifying, sick to the core to this church, and he does it for their good. Just like in the beginning of the show, Gordon Ramsay highlights his credentials, Jesus highlights his credentials at the beginning of this chapter. Have a look, chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3. This is what it says. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In other words, 
The seven spirits, seven, remember, Revelation, it means perfect, wholeness, completeness, that holds the Holy Spirit who's able to discern hearts and minds. He holds the seven stars, the angels of the church, who knows the spiritual condition of each and every church. In other words, his credentials, Jesus Christ, are he knows every single church. He's in the position to know everything about what is happening on the outside and the inside. He knows what every church needs to hear and not hear. And with Sardis, the church we're looking at today, he takes it to a whole new level. I mean, every church that we have looked at the last couple of weeks, he, Jesus gives encouragement. He gives them commendation, so, some feedback that is positive, except for Sardis. Have a look, verse 1. Jesus says this, I know your deeds. Now, you don't get a more factual statement than that, right? I know your deeds. Yep, noted, tick. It's like if someone's got a new puppy or they've just rented their bathroom and they want to show you, right? They don't expect you to say, I see your dog. I see your bathroom. They're waiting for an encouragement, feedback, right? Some positivity. But Jesus is saying, I know your deeds, tick. I can see them. You have a reputation of being alive. In other words, your reputation precedes you. Everyone is talking about this church. It's a beehive activity of energy. But wait for it. But you are dead. Now that is a kick in the guts, isn't it? You are dead. Imagine Sardis, the church, reading this. And you, what? Is that a typo? Did they get, read that right? We're dead? Now, I presume that why Jesus doesn't say anything positive about this church is not because there's nothing to speak positively about, but he knows they do not need to hear it because they would have heard it from all the other churches. Their reputation from Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira would be like, wow, Sardis, have you heard? How great they're in community engagement. They're, they're busy, they're active, they're programs. Look what they're doing. And Sardis, as they would have read each church, Jesus' letter to them would be presuming when it comes to them, Jesus is going to add to their glowing reports. But what does he say? You are dead that Jesus grabs the pulse of this church and there's nothing. It's a zombie church, a glorified coffin, that they may be pleasing other people, but it does not please God. Now, to be honest, we don't really know Sardis in terms of the size, big or small, the style, contemporary, uh, traditional. We don't know their story, right? But all they had was a reputation. But reality did not match up to it. There probably was a heyday when they were truly doing great things for God, but it's in the past. And they have more in common with the cemetery down the road than anything else in their city. Now, what does Jesus do? Jesus does what most kids do when their dad is sleeping on holidays. Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Now, if you think about that for a moment, it's an interesting response, isn't it? Because Jesus said they're dead. Yet wake up presumes what? Sleeping. It seems like a contradiction, except if you know Jesus. Know who he is, that he is the word, the word became flesh, that he was there in Genesis speaking and life existed. He was there when that little girl, that 10-year-old girl was dead, and he said, 
to her, wake up. He said to Lazarus with his word, come out of the grave, that Jesus Christ is in the resurrection business. And he can do the impossible. He can move someone literally from death to life and he can move a church from death to life. His role is two words, wake up. And then he says, this is your role, verse 2, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Reminds me of like an ember in the fire, you know, a glowing ember. The other day I had, um, had my first fire pit outside for the year because uh, the wood wasn't wet. It was dry and I got it out there and uh, invited Andrew over. He's another pastor here at church and uh, had the fire going and then it sort of decreased and put the kids to bed, came out. There's some little embers there and I put some logs on. Nothing happened. And I looked at Andrew and Andrew looked at me. And said two things. The first is, this is going to make a great sermon illustration on Sunday. But the second thing was, we need to do something or this fire is not going to last. So he took the logs off, he put some kindling, put some paper, and put some sticks, and all of a sudden, boom, the fire was back. The embers did not go out. And Jesus is saying, wake up, strengthen what has remained. It's like an ember, it is fading What will you do? Will you just look at it or will you do something about it? Because Jesus says your deeds are unfinished. They're unfinished. I mean, how do you feel like when someone in your household says, hey, I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to mow the lawn. I'm going to put the laundry away and does it, but then stops halfway through. And then you come to see half the dishes washed, half the lawn mowed. Half the laundry put away, right? Some of you are nodding, looking to that person who you live with, right? That's you, right? You don't feel, it's unfinished. And Jesus is saying, he's come, and there's a whole bunch of unfinished things that this church of Sardis is doing. Now, what commentators say about the church of Sardis, what we do know is a very wealthy city. And there was a big Jewish synagogue in the middle of this city. And so they presume that the Christians here lived quite peacefully in this city. They had a level of religious freedom, that things for this church were running quite smoothly. And you see this even later. It's not just encouragements that are absent. You notice what also is absent? There's no persecution here, like Smyrna. There's no temptation for false teaching, like Thyatira. There's no sin issue, like Pergamon. They're just comfortable, coasting along. Satan's not even mentioned. Because Satan knows he doesn't have to do anything with this church. They're fine to slowly but surely, like an ember in the fire, go out. That comfort and ease will cool them down and they'll die. This is a warning to any church that is comfortable. I'm not much of a sailor. I don't really get it, sailing on a boat. You know, why do you call rope sheet? You know, pull on the sheet. I thought it was linen the first time I was looking on a boat, right? Well, I don't really get sailing as an idea. But all I know about sailing is that the rudder is very important. Because without a rudder, you will go, you will drift to places that you do not want to go. And friends, a church without a rudder will drift to places that we do not want to go. Now, If you're in a storm, 
right? If there's persecution, you, you know where you want to go, right? You're, you're very vigilant. If you're a new church, right, you, you want to make sure you're on course. But when things are comfortable and the sun is bright, the day is good, it's so easy to just drift. And here's the thing. You never drift to anything worthwhile. Never. Here's my question. How do we know we're not Sardis? How do we know as a church we're not this church? Because I presume they would be shocked by it. I presume they wouldn't see it coming. What are the signs that we could be Sardis? There's a guy called Tom Rayner who wrote a book called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And there he just made some suggestions that put once alive, vibrant churches into the grave. He says a couple of things, like one of the signs is, do you treat the past like a hero? Do you have no clear purpose or vision? Is all your budget focused internally, not externally? But he says some others, which I just want to flesh out, right? Just to get us thinking. He says this, have you allowed the Great Commission to become the Great Omission? Your know, church starts with a great commission, what Jesus is on about. Go make disciples of all nations. And you do that the first, but then you put it on the back burner. Other things become more important. That's other people's jobs. People out there, we're pretty full. It's all right. And you admit yourself. And slowly but surely, you become a church that's not on about what Jesus is on about. And in that case, it's a warning. It's a warning if you become happy with who's here and comfortable with who's not here. We as a church will keep talking about Alpha, keep talking about Christian export again and again and again, not just for the people who at this present do not know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Though that is a good thing, right? Not just for this, but for our sake. Because when a church is actively pursuing, wanting to see people move from death to life, it itself doesn't move from death, a life to death, right? If we want to be a church that want to see people move from death to life, then that'll stop us actually being a church that moves from life to death, right? Because we want to be on about what Jesus is on about and not drift. Another thing he raises, is your church content with what is? Because when you grow, when the music is great, the videos are encouraging, the kids' ministry is full, the place is packed, it's so easy then just to go into neutral and just cruise. And the enemy becomes not Satan, but change. We think it's just an old people's issue, right, with organs and pews, but it's all of us, right? Remember a guy, who's a young guy, who said, everything in my life is changing. I just don't want the church to change. And at first that sounds good, right? But what he was wanting from church, he needed to get from God. God is the only one who will never change. Church does. And we just don't want to do change for change's sake, right? But purposeful intention change. So sometimes, and I just want to highlight this, it's not like there's an email coming tomorrow, right, to surprise you. This is just a general principles, right? But sometimes service times will change. Sometimes we will do ministry think differently. Sometimes we will shake things up because we're realizing we're into a rut and we, don't want, to, we want to get out of that. Sometimes we want to pursue planting more churches. We do that not just for change, so that more people can experience what you're experiencing. A church community that loves others, that lives for Jesus and loves like Jesus. 
I was watching a documentary about koalas. I was actually at the gym sort of watching it, really. I was having to sit down watching this thing, but it was very interesting and stopped my workout for a little bit, which is not hard to do.、Uh, but as I was watching this documentary about koalas, it said this fact by 2050, if the right thing's going, koalas will be extinct. And it was a documentary about how they're rescuing koalas from floods, fires, from hit by cars. And it said the average koala needs 20 trees. And so it was a big push to start planting trees. And it said this line We can rehabilitate and rescue all the koalas, but if there's no forest, what's the point? And it got me thinking we can have 50 people. More doing Alpha, becoming Christian, knowing them, but we didn't have healthy, vibrant churches for them to be a part of. We're missing out. It's not what God is on about. He, he, we want others to experience, if you're enjoying this church, we want others to experience the joy that you're experiencing. And so we will, by grace driven effort, seek to plant more congregations, seek to plant more churches, because we want people to be part of a healthy, vibrant church. We don't want to stick with what is, but what could be. Third and final thing that he raises is a church is a warning sign, right, when we fail to regularly, corporately pray together. It's so easy to rely on your own power, not the power of the Holy Spirit. It's so easy to do, 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 and neglect the thing that we're called to do, which is pray. To look around and think, hey, we did something good here, and for that to get to your head. And to realize Jesus can take it all in a second. So, we want to be a church where our heartbeat is prayer. And so, the first week of each month, we get it and we pray because we can't do anything. Friends, we want our best days not to be behind us. We don't want to be content with what is. We don't want to do it in our own strength. We don't want Jesus to say to us, I see your deeds, but they're unfinished. So, what do we do? Jesus gives us three practical steps,、uh, three practical steps to the church of Sardis. And if it's us, three practical steps for us to do. And you know what? They're not fancy. Have a look at verse three. First step Remember, therefore, what you received and heard. That Christians are to be people who remember, because all of us forget. Not remember the past, the glory days, but remember your past and your gory days. And when you're a sinner. And yet Jesus Christ saved you when you were at your absolute worst. I was reading 1 Timothy the other day, and Paul, one of his latest letters, he'd been Christian for many years, still then, after being Christian for many years, goes back and remembers that he was the worst of sinners, and yet Christ showed mercy to him. He never forgets. To remember that your faith is not about what you do, what you've done, but it is a gift by Jesus Christ. Particularly if you've grown up as a Christian, as a grown up as a Christian all your days, it is so easy to think you had something. No, no, no. Your life, your salvation, your sanctification is all a gift of God. To remember. We come together each week, Sunday by Sunday. You know what to do? To remember. We come together to remind ourselves of the gospel. Or, you know what? No matter how smart you are, no matter if you have a PhD, you will forget. So, we read the word, we sing songs, we 
uh, ask for forgiveness. We pray prayers. We do the Lord's Supper. We, we say creeds. Why? These are not time fillers. These are moments to remember, to remind yourself of what you received and heard. That's the first step. Second step, what did Jesus say? Hold it fast. Hold it fast because it's so easy, particularly when things are comfortable, to let it go. It's like when you go on holidays and you know you get the keys to your house, right? And you're looking for, you, know, you always know, well, some of you are a bit nervous now, but where's the keys to your house? You know, they're in your pocket, you got them, right? But when you go on holidays and you're staying somewhere else, it's so easy to forget where the keys to your house are. You sort of, because you don't need them, you sort of let them sit loose, you know, and you think, oh, I'm sure they're somewhere. And you realize by the time you get to the end of the holiday, when you're moving back, where are the keys? In my pocket, they're in the car, or in the suitcase, because you realize you need them. But for that whole week or two, you sort of sit loose to them. And it's so easy to do that with Jesus, with the gospel, to sit loose, think, oh, it'll always show up, you know. But what did Jesus say? Hold fast, never let go. And the third and final thing, repent. It's amazing, if you've been paying attention, how many times Jesus says to his church, repent. Repent. That this is a Christian church, repent. Because he knows that if a church fails to regularly repent, they're failing to experience God's daily grace and mercy. Because sin leads to death, and repentance, what does it bring? It leads to life. You know, it's so easy as a Christian to slowly but surely create two versions of yourself. One people see, and then there's the people that don't see. There's your reputation, and then there's reality. There's the outside you and the inside you. And all of us, bit by bit, can create two versions of ourselves. And what repentance does is it brings the two together. It says, this is actually me. And I've been following Jesus, but actually this is what I've been thinking. It's not right. I've been, I've been trusting in Jesus, but I've been doing that. It's not right. And it brings the two together and acknowledges it. No, this is me. And you're bringing to a God who knows it, who knows the real you, and is standing there with arms open. Forgiveness in abundance. It says, welcome. That is what repentance is. And it is to be practiced daily at the Christian life. If you're not doing that, you're missing out. You know, friends, what I've appreciated about this series, as we've looked at each church, though each church is very different, there is one thing that has been consistent through the whole time. And that is Jesus' love for his church, for his bride, for us. Because he not only has redeemed us, not only died on that cross for us from sin and death, but again and again he goes out to rescue his bride from self-inflicted wounds. Again and again he goes out to save us from the foolish things we've done. Each church, week in, week out, he knows when he looks like a church of Sardis, others would say, let her die. Can't be saved. It's too far gone. But Jesus does not. He does not. He reaches down with, again, compassion and saves her. You may think the church is done. You may think it's all over. But Jesus has not and will not given up on this church. He loves her too much. Even though wounds that we do and self-inflicted, he reaches down again and again for his bride he loves and says, 
I love you. Wake up. Come to me. There is life. And you know that because he ends with two beautiful promises for those who remember, who wake up, who keep and repent. What does he say? First promise. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. Now, often we think white is a symbol for purity, but really, in this context, it's a symbol for victory. In the Roman culture, when someone wore white, it was often in a military celebration, a military victory, that it was like a medal. You've made it. You won. But notice here who dresses who. They don't dress themselves. Jesus dresses them. He's the one who gives them the victory. It's like back in school when I did cross country. And look, I'm not being blessed with genes that run well, right? It's not a gift of mine, but I can run, but not run well. So what happens when we do cross country? You'd start, and then you would go, and then I'd remember all the other guys would just do laps around me, and I'd see them overtake me once, twice, and I would keep running, and then they would finish. And I would run past them as they had their water and their oranges and look at them. But I kept going with a stitch in my side and energy pouring out of me. And I stood and watched them as they stood and watched. Oh, sorry, I ran as they stood and watched me. Not once did any of them cheer me on. Not once. They just looked at me and did nothing. But you know, Jesus is not like that. He sees us going, and he, though, even though he's won the race, he runs to us. He runs to us, and he says, you will win. You will make it. Why? Because I did. That you will finish what you started because he finished what he started. And he gives you the victory. He is with you. That that is your promise. That is the victory guaranteed because Christ has guaranteed it. And he says, keep on going. Persevere. Finish what you started. But there's one more promise and it's my favourite. What's the last one? I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. I mean, this church, Church of Sight, all they had was a name. But Jesus says, who cares? Care where your name is written, the book of life. You know, in ancient times, you'd, you'd be recorded in a registry. And when you died, they would rub you out or mark you, uh, or would just cross your name out. And you and I will go through this life trying to make a name for ourselves. Our names will be littered all over the place. But when you die, off the census, off social media, maybe even a plaque, it will rust. And a church is the same, names for themselves, but they will go. And Jesus says, no, worry about where your name is written down in the book of life. A place that cannot be rubbed out or forgotten. I remember talking to my daughter, Audrey, who's worried that when she died, she didn't know would she get into heaven or not. And it was a real worry for her. I said to her, you know, Audrey, Jesus has a book. A book where everyone who trusts in him, their name is written in that book. And it's not written with pencil that can be rubbed out. It's not written by pen that can be smudged. You know what it's written by? Jesus' blood. 
and that can never be rubbed out. That he's given his life for you so that your name would be written in the book of life. And nothing and no one, whether a good day or bad day, can take that out. Your name is written in that book. That is what she needs to hear. I wonder if you need to hear that too. And the only way your name is written in the book is because Jesus gave his life for you and it is written down right now if you know and love the Lord Jesus. And who one day stand when you cark it or when Jesus returns and you stand before God, Jesus will say, after looking in his book, I know her. I know him. They're with me. Friends, appearances can be deceiving. And when Jesus appears, the kitchen that is your life will be exposed, laid bare. And the only thing that is worth having, worth knowing, only reputation of any significance for you or for any church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you've let go of your name and clung on to the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Whoever is is, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, you, by the power of the Spirit, are like an x-ray into our life. You see what's in us, what motivates us, what we value, what we love. And at times like Sardis, it is very exposing. It is horrifying. But we know, Lord Jesus, that you, we are not too far gone. That even if we are like a church like Sardis, that we are not too far gone. That your love that has not ended is not, we're not out of your reach. But by love you say, wake up. Remember. Keep. Repent. And we hold on to those promises, Lord. And we have good days or bad days. And we know because of you, Lord Jesus, that you gave your life, that our name is written in that book of life and nothing and no one can take it out. We ask, Lord, that we, as we are on this race of life, that we would not stop short, that we would not think we can just cruise or be comfortable, that we would not finish now, Lord, but know that you are coming back and that is when we finish that we would run this race by grace-driven effort, by the hope and the future that we will be victorious because you are victorious. And we look forward to seeing you when you say those words, hey, my Father, I know him. I know her. They're mine. Amen.